Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We live weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Jim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. All right, welcome to Weekly Weights. It is episode 108. Hey, we got there. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Lots of episodes, not much quality in there, but 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 the volume. Um, and we're going to have a massive spike in quality this week because we're joined by a very special guest. It is Megan, not Megan. Um, and are we going with Jones or Bryanson today? Yeah, I'm I'm Megan Jones now, but all my research and everything is Megan Bryanson. Um, so I I went I was used to be the only Megan Bryanson in the world, and now I'm the most generic Megan Jones in the world. So. I still stick with Bryanton or I'll put Bryanton in brackets, but if people want to learn about my research, it's Bryanton. But um, now with my social media, I've switched to Jones. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's not much clearer for me, but we'll, we'll just call you by your first name. And yeah, Megan. So like full on double barrel first and last name, it means you're in trouble. So okay. like we won't get there today. Um, okay. <laughs> we're joined by Megan. Um, and she is also known as Kinetic Advantage on, on Instagram, on Megan Kinetic Advantage. She has a company, Kinetic Advantage Consulting, and she has a PhD in human kinetics. Um, so she puts out some of, I was just saying this off air, some of the best sort of applied biomechanics content on Instagram surrounding powerlifting. She does personal analysis for lifters, some of which I've seen. I think it's really, really good. Um, and we'll probably touch on that a little bit today, but something else that's an interest of hers is master's powerlifting. And that's, that's something that we've actually had requested a number of times to cover. You have a seminar series um, coming out, or I believe now available on master's mm-hmm. powerlifting, and we're able to sort of do a little exclusive deep dive um, with our listeners who might be prompted even to go and sign up to your course. Um, so before we actually hit the content for today, is there anything that we've missed in the intro and anything you'd like to tell us about your products before we kick off? Um, just basically, uh, it's a new kind of business idea. Um, so it, some people are really unclear of you know what exactly I do. Um, but basically, it is um, biomechanical lifting assessments for one that explain to lifter why they move the way they do. Um, I break it down, it, but I also am still an educator, um, even though I'm not in academia really anymore. Um, I, I consider myself an educational resource more than anything. Um, so in my assessments or my consults or my seminars, it's about educating educating everyone about everything I've learned in academia the last little bit and translating it into how you can, you know, take these strategies and um, address weaknesses and movement deficiencies in your training. So I also provide training recommendations for that. Something that um, that's come out in, I listened to the episode of Iron Culture that you're on, um, which was enjoyable. And, you know, I, like I said, I've seen a little bit of your assessment videos and something in your language that I really like is that you don't, I think people are very inclined to sort of dichotomize technique or, you know, the way in which we approach lifts and muscular strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And I think something that you do really well is actually draw people's attention to the fact that technique emerges on the basis of, you know, what is strong, what is weak, what is familiar. And, you know, then you, you suggest to people things like alternative exercises to train perhaps weaker ranges of motion or weaker muscles and things so that we do get at the end of the day, a slightly more efficient competition lift. Mm-hmm. And I think the way that you're able to draw them together and relate them is really, really impressive and good stuff. So any coaches out there should certainly be looking up what you have Thank to say. You. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. And the the great thing is that all of this um, information and this, I guess, framework that I've developed for assessing lifting has stemmed from my geriatric research background. So working with older adults. So um, that's why I was really excited to, to be able to just that the fact that people are interested in masters lifting and powerlifting. Um, they're some of my favorite clients to work with because they're just so passionate about um, evolving their lifting and improving. Um, and there's so many, you know, voices in their head saying that they can't improve when really they they're completely capable of proving um, improving their strength and that's definitely something that i'm looking forward to whenever you said that you want to talk about masters lifters i was really excited to to get this information out there for everyone well in that case let's start um <laughs> and so the first the first question that we had for you which was just sort of setting the scene is what sort of age do people actually start peaking in their powerlifting performance um so some people will think about like hormones and uh, this is more applicable to male lifters. So whenever, you know, you, you have the, you know, the, um, I guess, testosterone levels that you need for improved muscle mass and strength. Um, it's, it is important after a certain age, those hormone levels do decline. Females, not so much. Females have to, you know, eventually get to the point where they're dealing with um, perimenopausal changes in hormones. Um, but when it comes down to it, regardless of age, everyone is able to improve their strength to the same extent. Um, if, yes, if you have more endogenous testosterone, you will be able to. Um, but in general, if we have everything equivalent, um, everyone is capable of it. After the age of 40, we do experience some you know, changes in our body and physiology. Um, but it doesn't mean that the lifter isn't capable of improvements. They're still capable of it. And if anything, strength training can um, reduce the amount of declines that might be observable. And all these declines after the age of 40 and really that take effect after the age of 60, um, what they're actually showing is they're really associated with a sedentary lifestyle. So with powerlifting, if you start young, you have greater strength reserves by the time you're 40. If you start when you're 35, you won't have as much strength reserves. So training age um, really does come into effect there. So if you want to make sure that you have, you have a bigger like tank of gas, and then once that gas starts getting depleted, you're, you know, you're working at a higher percent of, a, of your maximum force training capabilities, right? Whenever you're doing like daily activities or anything like that. Um, so it, yes, if you start younger, you'll be able to, you know, achieve higher strength reserves, but it really just comes to, um, you know, training age rather than physiological age, because you can still increase how much gas is in that tank or the size of the tank in general. Okay, sure. So um, what we didn't get out of there was kind of a firm number, which might be frustrating. Yeah, I know, I know. And every, you'll find them, you go like, it depends. And that's the, the Iron Iron Culture podcast that you mentioned. It was like, well, it just depends. And it's, yes, our physiology does change after the age of 40, but it doesn't mean that just because you hit 40 that it's all downhill. Um, you're still able to, you know, I've seen some master's lifters that are still PRing right now because they've taken the proper training approaches. So um, they're continuing to grow and get stronger and stronger. So there's really no like set age. And, you know, maybe um, you think like other sports and they say that, you know, professional athletes, they, um, 
like hockey or something like that. And of course I'm saying hockey cause I'm Canadian, but you know, maybe at the age of 30, that's when you peak. But, um, really when it comes to strength training and powerlifting, I really don't think that there is an age, an age limit to, to when you can achieve your full potential. Well, I was going to say, what are the, um, this is already a little bit off topic, but in other sports, what are the things that like, why are there differences in when say a sprinter might peak? or a gymnast might peak as compared to a power lifter or a bodybuilder or something. Like it may be that, you know, our joints do wear down over time. Um, so there might be pain associated with it. Like I said, the hormones, testosterone, um, certain sports. So with powerlifting, you are always training for max strength. Right. And um, that is extremely important in preserving muscle quality with aging. So sarcopenia, it, what it is, is there's this after the age of 40, there's this progressive decline in muscle mass and in muscle fiber um, numbers and motor unit pools. So motor unit is the, the nerve that stems down from the brain that activate the muscles and it innervates and connects to a bunch of different muscle fibers. Um, so together it's like that functional unit for muscle contraction. And so with aging, we start losing numbers of those. And um, so there, there's different theories of why it's happening. And um, what, what's really interesting is a lot of it suggesting that it is because of the activity that the muscles exposed to. So if, if you were to take a master's lifter in different sports and compare them. And this was a really neat research study by Klitgard. Um, it was back in 1990. So it was a while ago and I wish someone would replicate this, um, but they did a cross-sectional study, meaning they looked at master's strength athletes, master's um, runners, and I think master's swimmers. And they saw that master's strength athletes had the exact same muscle profiles as young adults where the master swimmers and runners, they had the same muscle profiles as elderly non-active adults. So that chronic activity that the, the muscles are exposed to is extremely important preserving muscles um, how, like, with respect to like, you know, a, a young adult there. So you can see these masters powerlifters that maybe they've been in the sport for like, I don't know, 10 years and you look at them and like, because they've been chronically exposing their muscle to this high intensity activity, we don't see the declines of aging like we do with um, other sports. So if you have a sport like, uh, I don't know, like soccer or something where you're not doing high intensity, like chronic training, that athlete will probably start to experience sarcopenia and the declines, especially whenever testosterone levels decline. But the, the master's powerlifter, they're going to be you know, perfectly fine. They're going to keep that muscle mass and they're, they're less likely to, to lose it compared to other sports. So it's, it's about that really, if you don't use it, you lose it. And for older adults, they're losing those big, strong, fast twitch motor units with those type two muscle fibers that are strong and for quick motions that we really need for powerlifting. Um, so if they're losing those preferentially, whenever you're not training at all, but with strength training, you're training those muscle fibers, you're less likely to lose them. So powerlifting is like the perfect sport um, for older adults because of that. And secondly, why it's so good is because muscles that have higher proportions of type two muscle fibers. So like for the quads, 
they decline, their strengths decline at a greater rate than any other muscles. So they have selective atrophy and muscle declines in the quads more than any other muscle. And the perfect exercise to be training the quads, squats. So masters powerlifters are like setting themselves up for success, whether, you know, they've been training for years or, you know, they, they're just getting into the sport. Um, if they're just getting into the sport and they're over the age of 40, they, there's no reason why they can't get to that point and keep improving. Okay. Cause they're, they're training their quads. They're training how the muscles, how they need to be in order to preserve those muscle fibers. That was actually a very neat segue because you had sort of said that, you know, anybody can jump in and start making improvements. Um, and that it's hard to sort of put a put a cap on um, on when we will stop improving. Mm-hmm. Do we expect across the adult lifespan that people will gain will make like equal both absolute and relative rates of progress, or do we expect that say the untrained forty year old will make less progress than the untrained twenty year old? Uh, research studies have done it on frail elderly adults, like over the age of eighty, and eighty-year-olds still get the same relative amounts of increased strength as young adults do. A lot of it may not be increased muscle mass, so they'll see comparable increases in strength, but it's not—they won't get the same amount of muscle mass increase. So a lot of the improvements in strength are neurological, so their muscles are being recruited fully better. Um, they're synchronizing better, you know, they're becoming more efficient in how they're moving. Um, so you could be 80 years old and if you want to get into powerlifting, do it as long as you're doing it properly. And, um, like one of a study that I really wanted to do during my PhD was a training study, but I just didn't have the, the time, and the resources to do it. And I wanted to get frail elderly adults squatting and, doing like an assisted sit to stand basically. So like if you put a band around their waist and, you know, helping them up out of the hole, but um, just getting some sort of squats and just to like prove to people that like squats can cure aging basically. (laughs) Well, functional aging and, you know, muscle aging. So um, yeah, there's, I don't, based on what I've come across, I really don't think that there is an age cap for when it comes to powerlifting. Um, If I could sort of, play devil's advocate a little bit you were saying before that with aging and with sarcopenia especially we get this we get like inefficiencies emerging in that neuromuscular unit you know there's something about the way in which muscles are innovated and recruited for an activity Mm -hmm. that becomes less efficient is it possible that one of the reasons why we see sort of equal strength gains between the elderly and the young if they're not making muscle mass gains is that because the elderly, when they start training, if they've been sedentary, they're coming from a lower baseline again. So there's almost like a bigger neural reserve to make up and the young might actually be making, you know, those those neural gains and then actually adding strength capacity on top and they just net out at equal. Or do, yeah. you, do you really think they're both improving their baseline at the same rate? Yeah, and that's the problem with the research because they only do it for so many weeks and then they don't continue to do it after that. Um, so yes, majority of them for the, if we're looking at the research, it's sedentary, um, frail, and then they have that greater kind of ability that reserve for increased neurological adaptations, just like a, a new lifter, we get the newbie gains, right? Um, but whenever it comes to just looking at the master's athletes that have been doing it for a long time, it, it is comparable to the young adults. So stuff like, you know, being able to maximally recruit your muscle to the full extent, um, untrained young adults have problems doing that. And so do older adults, um, older adults with the 
What they also have is problems with like force control. So you'll see them use a lot more co-contraction. So their, their antagonist muscles are fighting against them because they want to increase joint rigidity. It, it helps with improved control. Um, so great neurological adaptations with strength training with an older adult is they get less co-contraction. And we see that in young adults too, but it's way more important with elderly adults because they're, it's, if you have this muscle fighting against them, and I always talk about the hamstrings, if the hamstrings are contracting like a knee flexor at the knee, that means the quads have to work even harder to counteract them in order to maintain like the net amount of knee extensor torque in order to come up at the hole. You have to extend your knee during the squat. So if you have so much more this co-contraction, the quads have to work even harder to extend the knee because the body might be prioritizing, you know, you know, stability and balance and force control or something. Um, so with training, we get that better force control, but we also get reduced amount of co-contraction. So our movement becomes way more efficient like that. For sure. Um, what about, so, you know, you mentioned there's research on the elderly and frail. Is there much, is there much research looking at progress, the rate of progress made by masters athletes and specifically for powerlifting? Is there much on that? Unfortunately, no. And I, and I wish there would be, um, because right now, and it's, it's not like I, I felt like a cop out a little bit because when I was doing my master's, um, it, it was focused on strength training, strength conditioning. Um, and then with, with Canada, I'm not sure what it's like in other countries, but in order to really, um, get a job anywhere, whenever you're done your PhD, you have to show that you can get funding. And in order to get funding, you have to do basically special populations. And so I went into to geriatrics because all the research I was pulling from to support my master's thesis on squat biomechanics was actually from sit to stand research with elderly adults. And I was like, okay, if I really want to understand how like um, strength training affects everyone, then why don't I look at like the opposite spectrum with frail, more, you know, less capable older adults. Um, so I went into that because of that. And then also because I was, it was setting me up for getting a job better. Um, so I, that's why I was a little bit of a cop out doing, um, geriatric research, but it was a great experience. And, um, but if you were to like, I want to do sports research on master's athletes, um, they're going to be like, well, that doesn't help our healthcare system. So we're not going to fund it. And if you're not going to get funding for it, no one wants to do it. So it, it sucks, but that's just the politics of academia. So people do the research where the money is, unless you've been in your career and you have your full appointed professorship and you're basically have tenure and you can do anything without getting fired. Um, those are the people that are capable of doing it, doing that kind of research. It's just, they don't really want to do it. So I wish there would be. So right now, everything that I like, especially I talk about in my, my online seminar, it's, me putting the pieces of the puzzle together. I just wish people would actually do some research to confirm it or point me in another direction of, you know, what are the underlying reasons for it? I got to say that's, um, we have another prior guest on the show, Tim Davies, who, um, who does a lot of research in strength and conditioning now. And something he's expressed to me privately is, is how difficult it can be to actually get research done on things that, that you find meaningful or important because there's always the conflict with, doing things that are going to get the universities funding or doing things that are going to get you like widespread prestige as opposed to necessarily answering a novel question, particularly in sports. Yeah. They don't like novel stuff because if there's no prior research on it, it's too like 
like it may not work out and then they don't want to fund you for it. So in Canada, you, you have to do more specialized like healthcare type research um, in order to get any type of funding. Unfortunately, like I've gotten funding, but still couldn't get a job. And that's why I started Connecticut Managed Consulting <laughs> because there was no research or there was no um, academic positions for me. So I'd, I was like, I'm the epitome of a millennial. I, there was no jobs for me, so I made one. But so <laughs> it's, just, it's just politics and ivory tower stuff that you have to deal with. Um, I'm curious. So in my placement for sports science, I did work um, on a research study that was looking at training elderly people with osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. um, and I actually quite enjoyed it. I had to run a bunch of them through exercise, you know, exercise sessions and observe a few other, a, a few other things that they did. And I thought it was really good fun. And I was actually surprised how hard a lot of them were training in a research setting. Um, oh, yeah. How did you find it working with geriatrics? I, I loved it. And like, they, they purely are truly interested in not only what you're doing, but you. Um, so my, my protocol from my study was I wanted to look at compensation strategies and how it differed between young and older adults. Was it just dependent on strength reserves? Was it a neurological aspect of it? Um, and I did end up finding out that it was based on knee extensor strength reserves. It was a major predictor, but the protocol was basically getting them to stand up and down from a chair until they reached volitional exhaustion. Like they couldn't do it anymore. They collapsed or they couldn't keep the beat to a metronome. And I had to do a 30 minute cutoff because the, the older adult participants, like they just really wanted to push through it. So that was one protocol. And then they were willing to come back for this part B of the research study where I got them to stand up from a chair and then I fatigued the crap out of their quads with like a isolated leg extension and then got them to jump up quickly and like transfer over to do the sit to stand again. And they, they tried so hard and I know I got good data from them. The young adults, they're kind of like, they'd either avoid me because they didn't want to come back for part B or I could just tell that they're like, oh, this is annoying or like, this is boring. And you know, so... That's I, I exactly truly enjoyed them. The old folk were so competitive and determined to do things as well as they possibly could. And yeah. whenever we had to do testing on fellow students or anything, they were like not at all interested in actually trying hard, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Especially when it's a pretty intense protocol, but, and I always, at first I was like, oh, like I don't know if I can like force an older adult to do this. But after, by the end of it, I was like, oh yeah, no problem at all. I'd do this again. I'd do worse to them next time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> we'll view slightly back towards the topic. Um, <laughs> so we've got this, we've got this sort of little, um, little hit list of, of changes that might occur with aging um, or things that we might expect to see different. Um, in people as they age. And so one was recovery and just the ability to sustain hard training. Um, are there meaningful differences between masters athletes and the younger in that respect? Yeah. And uh, it does really go back to um, the cardiovascular and respiratory system. So if, even if you've maintained the same kind of muscle fiber proportions and sarcopenia hasn't hit you um, cardiovascular wise, there are some reduced um, I guess, capacities. So your cardiovascular capacity. Um, so we'll just get blood flow to the muscles. Capillaries are less dense. So there's less delivery volume to the muscles. And then that means there's less removal of 
waists and everything like that. Um, so yes, you can, you can do, you can train that, but there is um, a reduction with aging. Um, so that means it takes longer to recover. And with respiratory capacities, um, this is one that the research is showing that there isn't, um, unfortunately, an ability to improve it. So you have to make up for it with either improved, you know, um, adaptations with the cardiovascular capacity. So doing more cardio, or if you think of it, um, if you're stronger and you're working at a lower percent of, of your maximum force training capabilities on day-to-day -day activities, you're not going to be fatiguing as much. So you can make up with your reduced respiratory capacity, meaning like your oxygen exchange and how you're oxygen your muscles and removing carbon dioxide. You can make up for the, that um, by doing more cardio um, and you know getting stronger. But obviously, powerlifting you're you're working at percent of, of your MVCs, so it you know doesn't make too much of a difference there. But in your daily activities, you're not going to be working as hard, um, so you will be able to recover. And compared to um, someone that was less strong, basically, um, but because the cardiovascular system, it, older adults may need to do a little bit more cardio to make sure that they're maintaining it because it will decline and it doesn't decline at like a, a straight line rate. It, at, with each decade, it recline, declines quicker and quicker. So it becomes more and more important um, to do some cardio in order to maintain that cardiovascular capacity. Um, but overall, it does mean, you know, more recovery time. And there goes my microphone. It can also mean that maybe they can't handle as much um, volume in a single session. So I think that choosing the right exercises is important. So if you're a coach, don't just throw at them like everything, like, you know, don't go fishing and throw everything out and hopefully something sticks and something works. Um, you got to be really precise in what you're programming them. So for example, when I see a lifter and I assess them and I say, okay, your relatively weaker muscle group is your knee extensors. And that's common with older adults. And then I see that you use a lot of hamstring co-contraction. So instead of making them do, you know, a bunch of glute work, a bunch of hamstring work, a bunch of quad work, anything like that, or single leg work, um, I say, okay, make this training block your knee extensor training block. And then we do things like myofascial release of the hamstrings to get tension out of them to kind of knock them out. And so we're reducing them, that amount of co-contraction. Um, the hamstrings are recruited to assist the glutes. So if we make it so the hamstrings can't contribute. That means the glutes have to work harder. So you're getting a training stimulus for your glutes anyways, but it's about improving that efficiency and making sure that every exercise has a, has a really precise purpose. So older adults, when I say, um, you need to be training your knee extensors more, okay, well, I'll just go do a bunch of leg extension exercises. Well, well no, because that doesn't actually, single joint exercises don't transfer very well to multi-joint ones like the squat. Um, you know, we see that, yes, there's, if you improve how much muscle mass you have, yes, you have more contractile volume and that will help. But there's other things like spinal reflexes that and coordination that come into play and those pesky hamstrings. So um, I get them to do very deep squats because very deep light squats, you can get the same, if not better training stimulus for the knee extensors, the quads, than you would to a partial range of motion or he anything heavier. So I would say, okay, we're going to do Frankenstein squats. And they're like, oh, well, with what weight? And I'm like, just the bar. 
And they're like, well, that, that's super easy. And it's like, well, you just try going to ask to grass with a Frankenstein squat with just the bar and add a little bit of weight. And you tell me it, how easy it is. So by going very deep ass to grass, they're, they're isolating their knee extensors in a way that's in a multi-joint fashion. And I've found that it transfers over very nicely to their competition style squat. Sorry, please don't swear on the podcast uh, next time. Uh, <laughs> what did I say? We drop that joke every week, but we've never done it for anything less than someone saying shit. <laughs> <laughs> that's weak sometimes like where i'm from in canada um they kind of say like we're the i've I've had americans call us like we said we sound like irish rednecks and so it's very like colloquial kind of small island and everyone swears and there's these accents that no one really can understand what we're saying so i've improved a lot but whenever i get really excited and i'm um, going on my tangents, or if I had a couple drinks in me, then my my East Coast accent and language comes out. So sometimes I don't even realize it, and what I'll say thinking? words like, "Sorry." I keep going, keep going. Um, I during my my master's thesis defense, someone's like, "Did you realize you said interpretating?" Like, what? instead of interpreting like it's yeah it's it's a bad accent so I've, I've worked very hard on it but sometimes I like zone out and when I'm talking when I get excited and then I don't realize what words I've actually said I was gonna say you're so polite because most Canadians are very polite that like ass would be quite a volatile swear word oh <laughs> not for me not from where I'm from like um f-bombs are dropped like every single type of emotion like you're happy mad sad you you, you drop the f-bomb and if, if you do feel like dropping any Fs later, that's t- perfectly fine as well. Yeah, this okay. Australian I don't... podcast, our language hasn't really evolved past four-letter words. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I don't as much anymore, but like it was every second word was F this, F that, because we were, we're from an island and we're either farmers that farming potatoes or um, fishermen fr- like fishing lobsters. So we swear like sailors. No, well, don't let us stop you. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to back to the topic. Yeah. 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 Um, Take away. How how does the aging process affect our capacity to actually move? Like, do we lose range of motion, and does this have an impact on the way that we lift? Um, so it it is again. If you don't use it, you lose it. So if you're not working yourself through the entire ranges of motion, um, then you are going to lose it. But what's more important is with the squat for muscle contributions, it's like a sliding scale. So from parallel to below, the, the deeper you go, the harder and harder the quads have to work because you have to push the knees forward more and more. So in order to be able to get deeper, that means you need sufficient knee extensor strength to be able to do that. So quad strength is extremely important. And we know with sarcopenia, it, like I said, it affects the, the quads more than any other muscle group. So it's not that our body is like stiffening up. It's, it may be that the body knows, okay, I'm not strong enough to go deeper because I don't have that knee extensor strength. So I'm going to prevent myself from doing it. And I see this with the young adults as well. If they don't have the knee extensor strength, they start cutting their depth and they'll say, Oh, it's my ankle mobility. I'm like, well, can you squat deeper it with a light load? And they go, yes. So why is it that you cut depth when it gets heavier and heavier? And it's like, okay, right. 
I do have the range of motion for that. So it's, you're not strong enough to be there. Your body's like, no, let's, let's not get into that position. Um, another clear cut sign is if you're in competition and you know, you, you cut depth a little bit and you get like one white light and two red lights. <laughs> so stiffen up real bad once we get over 90% and you guys don't know what it's like to have stiff ankles, but like I can ignore it for a time, you know, and when they get bad, they just get really bad and there's nothing you can do about it, but it is, it's a hundred percent the ankle. If you know it's your ankles. Okay. Other lifters, they'll, so they'll, um, you know, cut depth and then the, the lift looks really easy and they're like, well, just go an extra inch. You'll be fine. And you'll get your two or three white lights. And then they go like one inch and then all of a sudden it's like a grind or they completely fail. And that's because all of a sudden around parallel, the deep, when you go past parallel, the knee extensor demands spike up and the hip extensor ones decrease. So the glutes have, aren't very good at producing hip extensor torque in more flexed hip positions, which means deeper squats. Where the knee extensors, they, they're really that, I call it the make it or break it muscle group in the deeper positions. So it's not that they are not able to get deeper. It's just that they don't have the strength to do it. Otherwise, they're going to completely fail. And we see that a lot with um, the aging research because they'll look at um, seat height and they'll test what they do. And you'll see more compensation, like momentum transfers, where they swing their body forward um, to get up out of those deeper positions because they just don't have the knee strength, extensor strength to get up because they're below, their thigh is below parallel. So for those people like Will out there, starts <laughs> I like how we let you off the leash for saying ass and we were like, no, 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 you can't offend us. And then she was like, oh, sweet. Well, I'm just going to fucking personally attack one of the hosts, <laughs> you know, the one who invited me on. <laughs> like, oh, look, anyway, it's 3.30. Um, Megan, it's been really good to have you on. Um, sorry, I know you preferred Megan, but you're Megan now after that. Um, yeah, we'll wrap it up right there. What do you reckon, Alex? No, you got more to ask. Yeah, there's more. Uh, all right. <laughs> We'll keep her on. All right, let's talk about some of the practical implications of aging. So you mentioned earlier that um, as we age, our ability to do volume is going to decrease. How How is this like on an actual sliding scale? How much of a proportion of uh, volume are we going to see drop off? Um, that's a good question because no one's really looked at it. And I, I'm not a programming whiz. Um, I look at... So how I monitor how they're recovering is I look at their compensation and I look at um, how much their technique changes as load is increased or reps go on. So if I see that at like, you know, regularly we see some sort of like torso collapse or their hips shoot back, we don't see it until like 80% of their 1RM. Um, and then all of a sudden the next day I'm seeing it at like their second warm up. then I know that they're not recovering properly. Um, but yeah, sliding scale, I, I can't really exactly say, but I, I look at it like you need to just test the waters because everyone's going to be so different there. You know, um, one of the sort of tropes about training older people is that they, they can sustain less frequency because of those like recovery differences um, and possibly that they need more frequent deloading and things, but also that they would detrain faster. Mm -hmm. you, is there much merit to those ideas? And if there is, how might they play out practically? Um, with their muscular system, I don't think they detrain as quickly 
or, or they detrain de de quicker, um, but cardiovascular wise, they may. So it may be just like the cardiovascular system um, detrains because with general population, um, young adults, it, it does detrain pretty quickly. So if you're not continuously doing it, then um, you're going to lose it a lot quicker and strength gains come back pretty quickly. Cardiovascular doesn't. Um, so they may need to, um, you know, if they're detraining, it's probably because of the cardiovascular aspects of detraining, not really the, the, the muscular for that. Um, I think I like zoned out on what the rest of your question was. <laughs> Sorry. The lack of respect for particular <laughs> is peaking right now. Um, I also said that, that possibly that they'd sustain lower frequencies of training and need more frequent deloads. Um, are those things that you've observed or you'd believe to be true? Uh, yeah. And it depends on their coach. Um, I, I've worked with like a lot of some of my master's athletes that I've worked with. Um, they have coaches that, train a lot of masters athletes and and they can tell they know when to deload them um so like i i'm i'm kind of like that a sister like i i'm a tool an, an extra tool in their in their toolbox um i'm there to assist the coaches i'm there to assist um the the lifters and educating both of them so like all of my assessments the the coaches has access to them and they can take my recommendations or they, they can leave it. Um, I appreciate when they do take it. Sometimes they, they fight me and um, basically I say to the lifter that, you know, your, your coach has the ultimate say in everything. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm there to provide some recommendations, but your coach is the ultimate um, end all. And there are some really great coaches that I've worked with that they know when they're lifter, they know when they need to be, you know, deloaded and they know that they can't handle as much um like accessory lifts thrown at them and um that's where i was saying like you don't have make sure that your training blocks are either like and some coaches will like have a training block that's very squat focused and the next one will be deadlift focused so you're not um really throwing too much at them because it's really difficult for a young adult to be able to you know get squat and deadlift gains like to really focus on both lifts at the same time um so they'll do that but then with the accessory lifts um they'll also periodize it so that like the, it's a knee extensor focus work um this training block for their squat the next one it's a knee extensor one for their deadlift and then we'll be able to tell um whenever their quads are fatiguing too much we'll see some of the compensation like i was saying um but um it, it just, it depends on the coach that I'm working with and their experience with the master's lifters. Um, how do you go? I don't know if you, I, I actually think that the lifters who would be inclined to work with you wouldn't be coached by people like this, but have you had any coaches who are all like, you know, let's bench with the lats and whatever it is like lats and bicep bench press or something. And you, when you say, you know, this person's pecs are letting them down a bit in the bench, they're like, you know, what, what, what? Like this woman doesn't know what she's talking about. Have you had any of that? Um, not yet. Um, I've, <laughs> and sometimes, and this was something that I learned on, um, another podcast was that I think on these podcasts, I'm unintentionally, um, calling out people. Yeah, me so far. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't mean to, it's just like, I, I know that I'm coming and I'm breaking these 
kind of, you know, these old school powerlifting mentalities. Like I've been powerlifting since 2007. I mean, I'm retired right now. I, I call myself retired. I may come out of it um, when I can have the time to do it, but um, I lifted equipped. I trained with the old school, like idols of Canada, um, you know, in powerlifting and everything was very old school mentality. And um, a lot of those misconceptions, like lats in the bench press, it's really coming from that equipped background and history that have been perpetuated into classic lifting. So with that, um, I, instead of just saying, no, that's wrong, I try to give them a different type of perspective. And I find that any coaches that have been hesitant at first, because this was really when I was, I started out because no one was like, who the hell is this girl? And like, where does she, who does she think she is? And like saying and challenging. And I've had some people on my Instagram that, you know, say something like, what do you like, who do you think you are? Like, how do you think, you know, and then I'll respond in a very politically correct type, polite way and demonstrate my knowledge and my background. But instead of just fighting people on it, it's better to just kind of show them different types of perspectives and realize that I'm coming at them with novel type of perspectives, but I also recognize that I don't know everything and I'm continuously learning more. And I guess me being humble and showing them that I am humble and I'm open to, you know, different types of perspectives and theories. And they are also, they kind of settle down and they're like, okay, like, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe let's try it out. So it, it's just on the approach that you take that I find. Yeah, and obviously a, being Canadian, it helps being polite. Yeah, very polite. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's a bit, it sounds a bit analogous to changing somebody's mind in almost any domain. Like if a client comes to you with a belief that you have to sort of disabuse them of, they've got to actually be ready to hear an alternate story before they're going to accept it and believe it to be true. And yeah. so like you might have to present an alternative viewpoint, but you can't really ram it down their throat. If they're not listening yet, you can just sort of put it out there and be willing to listen and be open-minded and explain your thinking and let yeah. it sort of percolate away a bit and see what they think, you know? Yeah. And like, especially with someone who's been doing a certain type of training methodology for a while and you say that like, no, it's, it's the science doesn't back it and the evidence doesn't back it. Um, their identity is like constructed around this training methodology. So when you critique the, the idea, you're critiquing them. So there, it's more of like a personal attack to them. Um, and that's what I've learned that I've inadvertently been doing. <laughs> and so that's where I realize whenever I, I like I do assessments and um, I'm have, you know, maybe that this might happen is I don't start by just critiquing and I don't like saying that my assessments are even a critique. Um, they're just an explanation. And I found that any type of lifter or coach like that, after I kind of break it down to like, this is why the muscle works harder or easier. I look at, you know, the, the moment arms and the, the, the body geometry and how muscles contract different lengths and um, the, the evidence out there. And then they kind of come back and they're, they're more receptive in that way, because I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm saying that this is how the human body works. Um, there may be, you know, this is what I've put together as, you know, why and what can work. I know that there might be newer ideas out there, but um, I find just saying that this is the, the knowledge, take it or leave it. <laughs> um, but this is like my perspective on it based on the knowledge. And then um, 
I, I find that a lot of those coaches will come to me or those lifters and they'll be like, you know what? Like, I feel like I always knew that, but I didn't understand why. And so it's, it's not that they're learning all this new information. It's more like I've just given them the why behind why they responded this way. And, and then they'll kind of have like that aha moment. So I give them a lot more credit um, than you think. And that they, they know they've been working for a long time. They know their stuff. They had the practical hands-on experience. And then I'm coming at them with, um, you know, the, the additional like, tying up loose ends kind of information. And I find that they respond very well to that. Sure. So range of motion. Um, that's the type of smooth segue, by the way, that we specialize. <laughs> yeah. Like if you don't have whiplash from our segues, then we have It's okay. It's okay. Um, so range of motion, we were talking about squat depth and how the extensive strength can be a big limitation. Um, further up the chain, just things that like I have noticed with older people typically is that their hips are often a little bit tighter and they don't seem to like want to arch quite as much to bench press as your, you know, like 18 year old gymnast background girls. Um, are they things that, that you would typically observe as well or are they less common or less limiting? Yeah. And, um, if, especially if they haven't been training for a very long time and they are, they're suffering from, um, like osteoarthritis, um, there will be, you know, the, the they're losing the, um, cartilage cushioning in their joints. And so there's a lot of bone on bone friction. So, and the joint space actually becomes narrower, uh, between the two bones. So there is, uh, you know, a, a structural, there's structural limitations there. Um, the cartilage in ribs also calcifies, so it's harder to expand the rib cage um, and, you know, really get that range of motion for arching. Um, so absolutely there. Um, to do my own little segue, just because I thought of it, <laughs> talking about osteoarthritis is there's some really cool research out there that's saying that strength training actually when you're doing it like the muscle damage um it releases the body's own painkillers substances into the blood bloodstream and so like you're exercising a muscle but they'll you'll actually get pain reduction in other areas of your body because of that so it's like exercise and strength training is actually that muscle damage and that or that release you get um, it's actually like your body's own painkiller. So it's actually really good for pain management, um, especially like for the knees, like squatting, improving knee extensor strength, shown great improvements with um, knee pain and arthritic individuals. So um, yeah, that's, I just had to say that because I thought it was really important. <laughs> yeah, no, we damage the muscles to kill the pain that we feel inside. Isn't that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Emotional and physical pain. Exactly. Well, I mean, I'm in even more emotional pain than normal squatting now because I'm like, not, you know, not only do my joints hurt, but I'm apparently not even fucking doing it right. <laughs> Watch it. You, you start to go training now. You're like, okay, I'm going to try some deep Frankenstein squats. And all of a sudden that your, your depth problems is gone. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. Or I could just film from lower. Like whenever I'm a little bit shifty on my squat depth, I just lean my phone more and put it closer to me and get as much like perspective error as I can possibly get get that hip crease looking real low. It works. Um, yeah, the judges don't look from there. That's the problem. I've been saying to the side judge, I'm like, why don't you just get on the floor and have another look at it? It'll look better. <laughs> it's their problem, not yours. Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> so the best bit about my segue for range of motion, by the way, was that I segued back to a completely different area of our run sheet to where we actually left off. <laughs> what okay. we were, 
what we were actually talking about was um was frequency of deloading and things and you gave us a pretty good answer and then we just went off um what about what about the training intensity that we give that we give masters athletes do you think it should differ um yes i think it should be higher um, you may not be able to do as much reps, um, but that's good because they can't recover as, as quickly. But um, it, remember, it goes back to that activity that the, the muscles are exposed to. So a really cool research study that, that I just thought of um, to kind of link into that clit guard study that I talked about looking at the master's athletes. So what they did, you can't do this to, real, to humans, but they looked at like muscles of animals that they've dissected out and they exposed it to different frequencies of stimulation, electrical stimulation. And they saw that whenever you changed how the muscles are being stimulated, the, the muscle fibers will actually switch their profiles. So actually, so like a type two muscle fiber will start looking like a type one if it's um, exposed to low intensity stimulation where a type one muscle fiber, the slow twitch, you know, more endurant one, it'll start resembling as type two muscle fiber that are the, the strong fast ones whenever exposed to high intensity stimulation. So that it's, it's giving that information that like, if you're always exposing it to that high intensity stimulation and always recruiting your muscles fully, then you're going to preserve those muscle fibers. And whenever we want to be able to more maximally activate our muscles, we need to be training at a higher intensity. And then that's like the principle of peaking, right? You have to, you know, you get that overcompensation, but you're, you're training the muscle to get better at fully recruiting itself. Um, and then another neat study was, they basically took my dog is snoring right now. We can't hear. Can you I can faintly hear him. Oh, he's cute. <laughs> she's just like she's jerking. Callie, stop. Okay. Uh, um, what they did was they took the nerves and they switched them to the muscle fibers. So it, it again showed like the changing in, in the um, the the physiology of the muscle based on the activity that it's exposed to. So they really need to be doing that high intensity in order to preserve those large, strong muscle fibers. Um, what you'll also see is, so because of sarcopenia and they lose those fast twitch motor units, they lose those um, big type two strong muscle fibers. They are more slow twitch endurant. So when you look at comparable, comparable uh, match load, so meaning if you get older adults and then young adults to do like a bicep curl, repetitive bicep curls or something at like 30% of their maximum force training capabilities. Um, the older adults have greater endurance cap capacities because of those greater type one proportions, those, those um, endurant muscle fibers. So they're, they're actually way more endurant than a young adult because of that change in their physiology. But that means they're not going to be as good at strong, forceful efforts. So yes, they have greater endurance, um, but their recovery is slower. Um, so if you're doing like this low, chronic, submaximal reps all the time, um, it actually will really fatigue their central nervous system. And that means they, you know, not only do they have to recover like all of this, you know, energy um, that they just, you know, did all these reps in the volume, but their, their central nervous system will actually fatigue quicker. So that's like another aspect. There's, there's physical, like physiological fatigue, and then there's neurological fatigue. 
Um, so it's about keeping the volume lower because they're, they can recover better. Um, but also if you're doing the high intensity stuff, they're going to preserve those muscle fibers and they're going to preserve their ability to maximally activate their muscles. So there's no point in doing high rep, high volume because they're already better at it than a young adult. Interesting. That's dope. Yeah. Um, how about competition stuff? So um, frequency of competition, should it be higher or lower for someone who's in their masters? Um, and what about like the attempt selection and warming up and stuff like that? So I find it depends on the lifter. Like I, I have this one masters athlete and he's like, he's still like a physical labor job, like a minor and he like very physically demanding job. And, and he has such a high training frequency and um, I've convinced him to, to back off of it and, and not train so much in one session, not do it as much per week. And it's, it's really been really good for him. Um, and what I've also seen with them is you can see that the muscle is slowing. So he's more of a grinder. He's not like a fast, quick, um, explosive type lifter. So we've done some strategies like um, peaking for competition. Um, and even in the warm up room, we try post activation potentiation techniques. So where you do like a heavy single and um, you do like a drop set after. And so that heavy signal single, you are really fully recruiting the muscle. And you make those fast twitch motor units and those type two muscle fibers more sensitive. Uh, it's basically more sensitive to calcium. So they contract better at the subsequent lower load. And this is something that they've been doing in sprinting and track and field for a really long time. They get the, the, the athlete to do like a heavy squat and then they get them to go to sprints and actually it causes in a temporary increased performance. Um, so it's, it's about doing the drop sets, but not like, okay, I'm going to go do a heavy single. Then I'm going to do a set of eight immediately after it's like you go and you do a heavy single and you wait basically the same amount of time that you would in between an attempt. So like three to like five minutes. Um, and that's where you're going to like fatigue and, po and post-activation potentiation are two separate entities and they both increase immediately or yeah, fatigue increases to decrease performance and PAP increases to increase performance after um, a heavy single. So you're trying to find that window where PAP is maximized and fatigue is minimized. And it's about like, it can be up to 12 minutes after a heavy squat. Um, so it, we, we would do that. And it's, it was really hard to get him not to try to just like, like rush through his training. And it was like, you need to time yourself and you need to wait five minutes after that heavy single. And then he dropped down and and do a, a lighter load um and maybe like you know a, a lighter load and then do another one then you go back and do another heavy single you have to play around with it everyone responds very differently um, but then as he was peaking for competition what we did was we made them the lifts more and more partial so he was doing like um like half squat and then he would do a a quarter squat the next week for his accessory lifts. And then the last week he was doing just a heavy walkout. And it was with these partial movements, you're able to handle more load. And so your body and your brain gets better at, you know, okay, I need to fully maximize this, activate this muscle um, because of the, these stimulus that I, that I'm receiving and sensing. So um, the more partial and partial and heavier and heavier getting close to competition, you really have to decrease the volume to be able to handle this so that you're recovering because it can be taxing on the central nervous system. So they're, they're not overtraining. Um, 
And then in the warm-up room, I actually got him to do his, I can't remember if we got him to do his set work up to his second attempt. And then he went down to a first attempt or something and then something like that, or he just did a heavy walkout, but it was something like he at least worked up to his first attempt uh, where most people they'll work up to their, to the weight right before their first attempt. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but for him, he worked up to it. Yeah. He worked up to his first attempt or what he thought would be his first attempt. And then he went out on the platform and then it moved quicker than it did in his warmups. Right. And then he's like, okay, now I feel more confident to make the bigger jump. So he'd have like option A, B and C for a second attempt or whatever for his third attempt. Um, so then he was able to you know, jump up a little bit more, feel more confident for his next attempt because it was making those, we, we think, I'm, obviously it's not going to be the same for everyone, but making those, you know, the muscle better fully recruited and then making those type two muscle fibers more sensitive. So taking in some post-activation potentiation PAP techniques, um, I, I found to be really beneficial for masters lifters. Um, and that's something that also works really well for female lifters as well, because female lifters um, have problems fully maxima maximally activating their muscles as well compared to males. Um, something that I've observed is that older lifters often take longer to warm up. So is that something, I mean, one, does that play out in reality and two, would there be a reason for that? And maybe is that a planning consideration? Um, I think it's because they're more meticulous and they like, they're more serious about their warmups than um, younger lifters and they're just experienced and they know, and they've, they've realized that I need this amount of time to, to, to warm up and they just don't rush into it. It's, I think it's more of like um, an ego thing for younger adults like oh i did this in warm-up i got this or I, I did this in training this is fine where older adults are a little bit more like meticulous and they they assess things constantly and they they think and sometimes they overthink a lot more um compared to the the younger lifters i find but they they know that okay i need this amount of recovery time because they're they take the time to do it it's just like with the research studies they they put a lot more effort and thought into it and they take it a lot more seriously than um, I find the younger adults do. I've definitely noticed the number of warm-up attempts that they'll do for generally gets more with older people get like I've seen generally I'll recommend someone do between four and five warm-ups before they do their opening squat. Mm -hmm. That's my general recommendation. And you know I've seen masters lifters do up to eight squat warm-ups before their opener. Is that yeah, and, so, and sometimes it might be like they're a creature of habit and that's what they've done. So they, they want to keep doing it. Mm. Um, but as long as they're allowing enough recovery time in between, I think that's what's more important. Um, and they're not, if they're doing a ton of reps in their warm up, then that's where I would say like, okay, maybe no, like scale it back. Like with this master's lifter I was talking about, he was like doing high volume and everything. And he's just like, I'm just so tired all the time. And I'm like, yeah, because you're a you're a miner and you you do manual labor all day long. You're on two week shifts and then you come home and you train for two weeks. Um, you, you need let's let's do a different strategy. And that was really scary for him. And because you know they've been he was he's been lifting since like before I was lifting. So um, it it was um, scary for him. But if you just kind of 
lay it out and, and give the reason why and not like say like, no, you're wrong. You don't know what you're doing. If you, if you come at it from the right approach, then they'll be more receptive of it, even though they may be creatures of habit. And, um, it, it he was, you know, he's like, it, the first thing worked. And then he was like, okay, yep. Whatever you say now. So it was just like kind of that aha moment to be like, okay, like maybe I need to change my perspective on you know how I'm training, but, um, I do find, yeah that if that's what it is, they're just, this is how they've always done it. Um, then yes, they will do a lot more, more warmups there. And uh, how about attempt selection? Because one other thing that I've noticed is that masters lifters tend to take smaller jumps between attempts. Is that something that you've noticed as well? I think that kind of just plays on from the, you know, more, more warmups before their opener, which means smaller jumps before their opener, which means they carry that on to smaller jumps in the platform. Yeah. And, and we see this a lot with female lifters too. So the, the, the link there is that females typically have lower proportions of fast twitch motor units than males. So women rely on rate coding, um, neurological coordination strategies. So like in order to increase our force output, you can either get the, the muscle fibers, the slow twitch ones to fire quicker and they're tensions like summate on each other, like they, they add and then we can increase force output or you can increase the number of motor units recruited. Um, so women more, rely more on rate coding, men rely more on motor unit recruitment. So if you really rely on rate coding, you're, there's this less likelihood that you want, your body wants to recruit the muscle fully. And so with female lifters, then every female <laughs> lifter that I've talked to, they, they really relate to this in that they can grind out a, rep, a set all day and do like 15 reps or something. And then you add five kilos to the bar and then they fail. And that's because their body is less able to fully, you know, increase the amount of motor units recruited. They want to do this rate coding strategy. And so that it links to the older adults because they have lower proportions of fast twitch motor units as well. So male masters lifters, their muscles start resembling more like female young adult and female um, masters lifters. So female masters lifters actually experience less of a change due to sarcopenia because they already have lower proportions of fast twitch motor units. The older male adults, they experience the declines greater. And a lot of the research is actually done on male adults. And that's why like, it's based like, oh, it happens. Well, at, in females, they actually see a lesser rate of decline. They have lower strength reserves to start with, but the decline in rate of it is actually less because there's less of those fast twitch motor units to lose. So if we look at the female lifters there, it's, it's that the big jumps, their, their central nervous system is like, whoa, like this is too much for me. This is a big jump and I'm not ready to fully recruit this muscle. So you kind of have to do those smaller jumps and that may mean more um, warm-up sets. Um, but if you can take strategies like post-activation potentiation to better fully recruit the muscle and make it more sensitive for the next subsequent rep, then that's what's going to really help them there. Unreal. Um, I feel like you've covered heaps of really valuable ground in, in the hour that we've had you on. Um, Alex, do you have another big question? No, no, I'm good. Um, in that case, we're going to take a little break and then hit you with the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. But oh before we do, um, if there's like, if there's anything that we have missed or you wanted to just give a really quick summary of like, from a practical level, what coaches should be doing with masters athletes, then go ahead and drop it. 
Um, I guess big summary is high intensity strength training squats, <laughs> knee extensors. <laughs> That's all you really have to focus on. Yes, so you need more recovery um, time, but don't pigeonhole uh, a master's lifter that, you know, don't think that they can't, you know, become that world champion or, you know, kick the butts of the younger adults just because of their age. Um, they're fully capable of exceeding your expectations if you use the right strategies for it. Man, all right, very quick break and then the four questions. Okay. Welcome back to episode 108. We're here with Megan and we're going to ask her the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. Ready to go? Yeah, I think so. So she's decided. My, my heart's pounding. Now I'm nervous. Oh, you her <laughs> up about this for two weeks. We, we just asked her off air if she wanted to know what they were before and she's decided not to know. So that makes it worse for you, but good luck. Okay. Ready to go? Can I like say no comment is that allowed no, absolutely absolutely, absolutely not, not. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay all right question one mm-hmm. if you could take anyone out to dinner dead or alive who would it be oh man there's so many it just depends on what part of my life like that i'm thinking about is it like well, can I my academic side yeah you didn't say your spouse and that's so good because everybody <laughs> just like everybody says that because they like they have this misapprehension that their significant others can listen to the podcast, which they won't. And it's just it's such a boring answer. So not- no, no, he, he wouldn't expect me to say him, so it's fine. Oh, <laughs> we a- have a good understanding. <laughs> <laughs> he knows how Do you know who, who I would really love is like to go to dinner with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I love so- Arnie. Yeah, yeah. And my my husband's uncle he's actually friends with him so like it may happen one of these days wow this really like rich um guy in thailand and he's got this mansion there and he goes to parties with like sylvester stallone and arnold schwarzenegger and he took my husband's dad with him last year to this party at arnold's house and i'm like justin's like maybe i get to go next year i was like if you get to meet arnold before i do like we that's the end of us like it's not happening (laughs) see if you can get like a plus two from australia and will absolutely (laughs) absolutely honestly this is something i've thought about quite a bit like if i was if i was a movie star and i had that many like really quotable quotes to my name like Mm -hmm. you know i'll be back or whatever i wonder if i could resist dropping them in real life at like opportune moments like Imagine you're at dinner with Arnold Schwarzenegger and he's just got to go to the bathroom and he stands up and sort of like folds his coat over the chair and says, I'll be back. Like, <laughs> I would melt, you know? Uh, yeah, uh, my jaw would drop. And it's not like, it's more like, like some people might think it's like a crush thing, but it's like this full on respect for that man. And, and that's why, like, I would love to pick his brain. and you know, mm, He'd just... have some amazing stories. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, question two. Who is your favorite athlete of all time? Oh, man. We've found out that it's not Will. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, man. Like, yeah, these are, it's, if this was like five years ago, I probably would have an answer for you. 
but my brain is just so fried from school and a baby and everything. Like I'm, there's so many options. Like I wouldn't even know, like, cause before I used to be really into soccer and then, you know, hockey and then, you know, powerlifting for a while. And then I tried bodybuilding for a bit. Like I've kind of done everything. Um, oh man. So I bet I'm going to think about, of you're, you're Canadian. So what about hockey? What about like Gretzky? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I read his Wikipedia page. Like, I don't really know anything about hockey. I just like Mighty Ducks, the movie. And, <laughs> and I read the Wayne Gretzky Wikipedia page and he seemed, yeah, that's so mad. Um, he seems like unbelievable. Like, I can't imagine somebody yeah. being that dominant for that long. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he, he was ahead of his time. And we actually have an entire room in our house devoted to the Edmonton Oilers. Cause my husband's a, a diehard fan who Gretzky won a Stanley cup with them. Uh, but no, like, I don't think, I don't, I really don't know. I'm going to like think deep about that. And I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. I don't even know what sport I'd want to be look at. Like maybe like, I really respect football players. Like, I think football players are actually, well, not like soccer players, like you're, I don't know, so you call football, yeah, like NFL, American yeah. football. Yeah, NFL football yeah. players are actually like really impressive athletes, um, especially rugby players. They're like, like the defensive linemen, like any type of lineman, they have to like be big, huge, strong, and fast, and endurant. Like, um, and yeah, they, you may look at them, they're like these, you know, kind of look like overweight guys, but like, they're actually like incredible athletes and moving a lot of mass. I don't know. I don't really follow. Unfortunately, don't follow sports lately. I just don't have the time to do it. I follow kids Netflix movies right now and that's it. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, we'll put in Ben 10 as your favorite athlete. Do you have Ben 10? That's a Cartoon Network show. I don't know. If- uh, my, my baby's only 10 months old, so we're not quite there yet. We're at like the Wiggles. The Wiggles are from Australia, aren't they? 100% they are. Yeah. We love yeah. the Wiggles. They've got a new <laughs> Wiggle, hey, since we were kids. There's two new ones. There's a girl and there's a, another oh, different dude. One of the dudes left and there's a girl. There's four. Yeah. That's so weird. So like, yeah, they keep just changing the Wiggles because obviously you grow out of them and you don't realise. Like, it's not like if you're an ACDC fan and you're like, oh, hang on, they got a new singer now. Like, you just don't realise when you've just been born that the Wiggles weren't always that way. Um, but yeah, they've updated them. And I think Anthony's the only original one still there. Anthony's the yellow one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happened? The yellow yep. wiggle. There's a yellow guy wiggle. Oh, no, yeah. he's the blue one. Um, no, isn't that Jeff? No, Jeff's no, Jeff purple. purple. The tall um, guy with the low voice, the red, red guy. He what's was. Him? What's he? He wasn't he like Murray? Yes, Murray. Simon. No, Simon. Oh, then he's changed. Okay. okay. Oh, oh my well, god. Oh wow, now my mind is blown that like this has happened. Like oh well, prepared to have you I thought mind. I knew the wiggles. So when when we had the bushfire crisis in Australia at the back end of last year, start of this year, um, one of the ways that they went to raise money um, for relief of the communities was through a music concert. And so the wiggles played and the oh, yellow wow. collapsed on stage. Um I think he, did he have a heart attack? Dunno. Um Yellow Wiggle collapsed on stage and I think it was a heart attack and people were relating it to the air quality as well because they were doing this outdoor concert in the fires. It was like the most tragic thing. And the whole crowd, by the way, were all like minimum our age through to like 
45, 50. Oh, um, really? Yeah, just jamming out on the wiggles because I had, I think, the original lineup as well. And they were just playing like Big Red Car and Fruit Salad and stuff and adults were popping off and then this guy collapsed. Wow. No, I didn't know. I'm new to the Wiggles. Like we just, we're at that age now that she's like actually interested in it. So, oh, well, oh my Alex God, my mind is blown. Well, it was cool. So there you go. <laughs> well, geez. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right. Question three. Which yeah. movie or television character do you most resemble? Oh my gosh. These are tough. We I was I was super nervous, like that they're gonna be like vulgar or something like that. <laughs> Questions. What? What type of question? Like vulgar, like. Oh God, no! <laughs> like Cards Against Humanity type questions or. No, we were upset when you said ass. We wouldn't say anything like that on the podcast. Of course not. Ah, uh, movie character, man. Maybe I sh- Yeah, right. I should have read these, and I'd actually have answers for you. Um, my favorite movies are Marvel movies. Okay. So my favorite female Marvel is Captain Marvel. So I'm just going to say her just because she's awesome. That and Was I, that pretty awesome? And I'm awesome. <laughs> sure. I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm kidding. But I love her. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's dope. I'll go with that. All right. Number four. So your life is being made into a movie montage. Okay. And you get to choose the music that it's set to. What music do you pick? Um, if it's about my life right now, it's probably going to be country music. Okay. Because I'm in Alberta, Canada, and it's kind of like our more um, redneck country type part of Canada. Um, American people, they understand like the liberals versus the conservatives and stuff like that. So they're more like the, the Trump part of Canada, um, where the rest of Canada is more like Justin Trudeau, our our current prime minister. So like Alberta, like they've talked about wanting to separate from the rest of Canada, um, because of their very differences, a lot of the differences. So it would definitely right now, it'd be country music. If it was the rest of my life growing up, it would probably be some sort of, um, if you've ever heard of Great Big Sea, but like an Irish folk is very like East Coast Canada type folk music with fiddles and stuff like that. Yeah, right. No, I haven't heard of Great Big Sea. <laughs> so when we're probably talking country not. music, are we talking like, you know, slow wailing harmonica sad country? Or are we talking like, you know, somebody's playing, um, what's it called? The banjo and like, you know, really upbeat country? Uh, all of the above, depends on the day, depends on what drama's going on in my life right now, whether I'm during academia or right now with a baby and everything. Right now it's like a fiddling banjo because I got a crazy kid running around like crazy. Dealing, with, dealing with this guy on the other end of a computer screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Wouldn't wish it upon anyone. Um, <laughs> and in spite of that, you've done so well. Um, so Megan thank you so much for your time today um your last job is just to tell everybody where they can find you where they can inquire for your services and look out for your seminar 
Yeah, so my, my website is kineticadvantage.ca. Um, if you just want to learn more about what I do, um, there's Kinetic Advantage Consulting, and then I've more recently released Kinetic Advantage Learning, which is my, my seminar series. So each month over the summer, I'm going to be releasing different ones. So um, I've released the Biomechanics and Assessment for Powerlifting Seminar. Um, that's kind of like my flagship one. And that was, um, it's it, they're all still available too. So you can register for them. You go through the learning content. It's basically like a course, but I call it a seminar because I have a discussion board where um, the registrants can ask their questions and then I answer them instead of just, you know, you know, learning it. And like, maybe they, they didn't understand everything. I, I want to give an opportunity to clarify everything. So every um, seminar has that discussion board to answer the questions. Um, so this month was my master's powerlifter. So my powerlifting for master's athletes. One next one is next month is powerlifting for special populations. So individuals with, you know, any type of disability, um, yeah, um, whether it's intellectual or physical or neurological, I'm going to be going over different ways of introducing them into the sport of powerlifting and things that coaches need to take into consideration. After that is, um, accessory movements and proper execution of them because people don't realize that they're probably wasting their time performing a lot of accessory movements. Um, but other than that, if you just want some free good content, and that sounds really conceited of me to say good content, but I can say that now because I feel like I've been doing Adequate. this long enough. <laughs> and, yeah, to be honest, I was pumping you up so you were confident so that you'd get on air with us. Yeah, like, I mean, it is content, definitely, what okay. you put out. <laughs> That's I've gotten great. some good feedback and I've built some confidence up. But you have I instantly pay for the internet with which you look at the content. So like there is a cost associated with having a look at it. Like it's not all for it. It also costs you time. Yeah, it does look and it's yeah. been doing nearly anything, like Frankenstein squats, mm. if you need. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my my free kind of if you just want to look at some content, um, is my Instagram where I put most of my posts out there. So my, my Instagram is Advantage, And so a um, bunch of different posts out there. I've been kind of slacking last few days or last week because I've just been overwhelmed with um, life. But um, I try to, you know, put what the people ask for. But at the same time, I like to put stuff out there that people probably didn't realize they wanted to learn about as well. So if you want to learn about more of everything I talk about podcasts, I basically have posts about this on my Instagram. Sweet. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Like I said, it's, it's been a pleasure. Really appreciated your time and you've done pretty well. Um, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> Better than most people do. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm Will W. Berkman PT. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore process. And we'll talk to you guys next week.